Good morning, family. Isn't God good? Amen. Really encouraged by that. Uh, thank you so much to Open Doors for, for just uh, taking the time out to come and just share with us. And I think we forget also the, the persecution that the Bible talks about. So this morning, and I hope that you took um, the, the challenge last week where Bevan asked everyone to memorize the book of Jude. So I, my work will be much easier. <laughs> So we might have a quiz, but um, we are in the book of Jude this morning. So if you can turn with me uh, to the book of Jude, if you ask me which chapter, please come see me after service. For those who don't know me, my name is Grenville. Uh, I serve here. I am a friend of the pastor. I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ, and um, I will be taking us through the book of Jude this morning. So I had the task when I was assigned the book of Jude to, to preach this message. And I was like, piece of cake, one chapter, 24 verses. This is going to be a quick one. Uh, my wife can attest I haven't seen her this week. Many, many, many late nights. So uh, I'm going to try and do as much justice to this book as possible. Um, there is so much. This is such a coal mine of a, an epistle. And uh, I'm going to try and do justice in the little time I have. As uh, Pastor Billy always says, it's a whole of time that we have to deal with. So let's not waste any more time. So let's jump straight into it, uh, family. Just want to swap mics. Okay. So we are in the book of Jude. Now, this, uh, Jude is very deceptive. And I'm going to take us through just the, the, uh, the outline of the book of Jude. So when we read the book of Jude, and for those of us who have read the book, you will see that the book reads more like a sermon than an epistle. Uh, you've, got, um, you've got the style. So the style is more rhetoric than oral. Um, so also the book can be dated back to 65 between 65 and 80 AD. This is sort of where the book has been written. Uh, so Jude loves rhetorical repetition. Jude has this, this habit of repeating, uh, repeating the same thing. Um, and, you know, if we understand from, from English class, you know, uh, repetition is a literary device that involves using the same word or phrase over and over. And if you read the book of Jude, you will see this literary device when I feel like I know this guy personally after reading this book so many times and after studying this book, I feel like I know this guy. And you'll read it at first glance and it'll be like, okay, I can see sort of where he's going. We look at the, the structure, right? The structure is very straightforward and we'll cover sort of the structure of the book. It's just 24 verses. Seems very straightforward. But the more you read it, the more you understand what a genius and what, a, what an author the Jude is. And when we're looking at that, you can see sort of how he implies style. Because I, for those of you who know me, I, I, I write poetry sometimes. And when you're writing poetry, you look at structure. You'll write, you know, if you remember from school, your rhyme structure will be A, A, B, B, C, C. And you add more layer to that. So you'd add references in the first verse to the last verse so that you're connecting ideas. And when you're writing, you see that style in Jude. So when we're reading the book of Jude, we, um, we, we get to see sort of the way Jude 
puts things together. Now, the outline of the book of Jude. Uh, Jude basically is confronting corrupt teachers who are distorting the message about Jesus. Um, those who are leading others astray. The epistle of Jude illustrates God's judgment on rebellion while warning the church of these rebels who are corrupting the church. Jude then lays down a charge or challenge to the church to contend for the faith and to stay faithful for God. At a glance, in a nutshell, this is what the book of Jude is talking about. Now, who is the author? Jude firstly identifies himself as the brother of James. Now, we know the brother of James is no other than the, also the brother of Jesus, who is also the leader of the church of Jerusalem. So when he's identifying himself, something really interesting to note, he uses the same introduction that you find in the book of James. We went through the book of James, and when he introduces himself, he says, James, bond servants of Christ. And um, so this is the same identification that, that Jude uses, but Jude might have been a boss in the church. He might have been on the highest echelon in, in terms of church structure, but he, 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 he identifies himself with the lowliness as, 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 as the, the bond servant, as a slave to Christ. I, if it were me, I would have been like, hey, Apostle Grenville, main O, the, the, you know, the last number. You, you, you would want to pick up your credentials because oftentimes you find even in books when you're identifying yourself, you'd always list your credentials. Doctor so-and-so, um, you'd list every credential that, that verifies and validates who you are. But he chooses to go and say that I am a servant of Christ also the brother of, of the, the, the pastor of the church. So we understand that sometimes we have the most freedom when we identify with the lowliness of Christ. The Bible says that the, the, the lowest will be exalted, the last shall be first. And this is the, the heart and the mindset of, of Jude. We also understand that Jude did not also believe in Jesus. He did not subscribe to Christianity at a very early age. If you read earlier in the, in the, in the Gospels, John 7 verse 5 says not even his brothers believed in him. In other passages it says that they believed him to be mad. They're like, go and do your miracle somewhere else. You are crazy. They, they, they thought Jesus to be crazy. They did not believe in him. But at some point there was belief. And this is the man who is addressing also, it doesn't tell us which church he's addressing. You find the book of Corinthians is written to the church in Corinth. The church of Thessalonians, or the, the epistle of Thessalonians is written to the church of Thessalonica. You would find the, the, um, the identification of the church in the epistle, but we don't know who he's writing to here. All we know is addressing a church who has some issue of heresy and some issue of false teaching. And this is what Jude, this is what sparks Jude. Now, what is the purpose of this epistle? We understand Corinthians, there was a bunch of things going on with the spiritual gifts, and Paul wanted to address the, the injustices and, and the wrong that was happening in the church of Corinth. But what is the purpose of the book of Jude? And we understand that many false teachers were rising in this time. Um, you also find that he just wanted to present, uh, or he wanted to, to speak to his readers and make it clear about the dangers that were present at the time. And also um, notify them that these people, that their judgment was predicted many, many, many years ago, and you'll see that in his narrative structure. So just the structure uh, of the book is you have the introduction in the beginning, I'm James, I'm sorry, I'm Jude, this is who I am, and then you get the prayer for the believers, he addresses the false teachers, which is the bulk of this book, that's from verse 5 to verse 19. Uh, verse 20, you find that there's a plea for us to contend, or the believers to contend with the faith, and 
and Christian apostasy, and then you find at the end is the benediction that is blessing over the church. Now, something that's uh, some writing style that Judah uh, uh, he uses in in this book, and I found this really fascinating. Like I told you, he uses repetition. But what Jude does, really, really amazing, which which sparks the poets in me, is he uses triads. He uses threes, and those who've read the book, you will see the number three popping up, not the actual number, but the repetition of three synonymous ideas. And the first one, you'll find in verse one, where it says, to those who are called, beloved, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus. So you find three ideas here. And something that I found really interesting when looking at this idea, I got sparked by this idea of three, 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 three. He kept using this number three. But then what you find additionally to that, there's another layer of threes that he uses. He uses threes within threes. And just to, to portray this and to explain this is, he talks about those who are called, right? He's addressing Christians. He's talking to the church. He's saying, you who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus. Now this word kept, you'll find this idea later down. So in this triplet, right, you have one, two, three, and then he's saying the word kept. He's finding another one, two, three. This is really fascinating to me, but he says, verse one, you are kept for Jesus, you. Again, in verse 21, he says, keep yourself in the love of God. That is your duty. The first is your purpose, is you being kept for Jesus. The second is, what do you need to do? You need to keep yourself in the love of God, all under the pretense of false teaching and apostasy. And then the last triad here is he's saying that now to him who is able to keep you from falling. You see that James is amazing with his writing style. He says you're kept for Jesus. Keep yourself in the love of God and Christ himself is able to keep you from stumbling. And this is under the shadow of these false teachers who are leading people astray. And this is how we stay in the grace of God. God keeps you. You keep yourself in God and God keeps you. That sandwich. This is the, the beauty, and I can get stuck in, in this literary analysis, but I want us to, to move on to the second mention of, the, of, of three, the second triad he mentions, the prayer for mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied unto you. Now, we're looking at where was, mercy else, uh, where was mercy noted in the Bible elsewhere. It's a rare greeting that I found three times. I found here, I found in First Timothy, I found in 2 Timothy and 2 John. And you fall, always find this greeting or this blessing under the backdrop of false teaching. Why mercy? We've got to ask ourselves these questions when we read in the Bible. Why would he note mercy, which is mentioned three other times in the Bible. It's the only time it's mentioned. And it's always under the pretense or the, or the shadow of false teaching. And we can perhaps look at that. But it's always under the backdrop of, of false teaching. Is that we firstly need to have mercy on those who have been led astray. you find later on in the epistle. Mercy needs to abound, peace needs to abound, and love needs to be multiplied unto us because of us contending for the faith, and we'll get into that. He goes on to, in verse 3, he says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you. You get the, you get the idea that he was writing a letter here saying, Church, I'm writing to you about our common salvation. Let's talk about the things that we have in common here. We talk about the love of God. We talk about the peace of God. We talk about the righteousness. Let's talk about the nice message, grace and love and happiness. Yeah. But he stops midpoints in his sentence and he says, I'm writing to you about this, but I had to change my, I had to change my direction because I overheard. It's like a messenger, an emirate came and said, James, uh, Jude, 
Have you heard about what's happening in this particular church? You find a change in direction and the rest of this letter goes down a different pathway. I'm talking to you about these nice things and somebody comes and says, have you heard about this guy preaching this false doctrine outside? And I'm like, hey church, I have to change the structure and direction of the message. This is what Jude is doing. He's saying, I found it necessary to write about this. You find, it's like an unwelcome task that he has to address. You find the pastoral nature of Jude in this particular passage. He's saying that, you know, because we, we as, 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 as leaders and, and preachers and pastors, you have to be a watchman. And what he's saying is that I can't let this go unnoticed. I can't leave this issue dormant. I have to address what these people are doing because this is the common faith and salvation that we all believe in. And these people are corrupting what I believe in. And I have to address this now. I cannot even, you don't even find this, this intended letter that he wrote down the line. He doesn't continue this letter. He addresses them. And in verse 5 to verse 19, you find this exposition, this tirade. He goes on a rant talking about these people. And if we were to do it today, we would probably be able to parallel all of the different false teachers and false prophets that we have out there. And this is what Jude does. He goes on a tirade. And what Jude does, this is how you see Jude as a scholar. He does a, a careful pieces, a piece of exegesis. And we learn that exegesis is you read out of Scripture. You read out, what is the scripture saying you read out of that? Instead of putting yourself in or, or reading into what you want the scripture to say. Jude is doing in verse 5 to 19 a careful piece of exegesis which shows that he's a highly skilled practitioner of Jewish, Jewish exegesis. Jude is using what they call midrashic. And that's a Jewish exposition of text. And it's one of the techniques that ancient rabbis used to, to use um, for detailed analysis to get meaning out of the theology in the text. So what Jude is doing here and how we see this, firstly he makes five citations. A citation is when you're recalling or citing something from a different source. So if I were to cite in my assignment, I'm citing certain books and certain uh, material, that would be a citation. And what he does after the citation, he makes a commentary. So Jude is writing his own commentary in the Bible. And this is how you see, because if you look at how he's structuring his letter, he cites something, he says, this happened at this time, and this is what, what, what it actually means. He's making a commentary for us, and this is an example of biblical commentary. So the first citation we find in, uh, in verse 5, and just very briefly it talks about um, how Jesus saved those who were in bondage in, in the nation of Israel. So he, he saved these people, and um, basically um, the children of Israel, if you can picture it right, the children of Israel are in bondage. They are being whipped daily. They are in subjugation. This is, this is a rugged slavery where you, you, you're hauling things and you're getting whipped. And Jesus saves these people from this. God saves them from this. He takes them through the narrow sea, splits the Red Sea, 10 plagues, all of these miraculous works. You can picture the scene. And the, these three million slaves are marching through, singing praises to God. Thank you, Father. 400 years of slavery is finally over. And once they are through, the waters closing, drowns Pharaoh and the, and the Egyptians. And not even a week later, they're saying, take us back. At, yeah. least, we ate, at least we ate onions back there. At least yeah. we had Krispy Kreme back in that place. Like, at least we had things. Now he's brought us in this desert to perish. The same people. And what he's saying here is that the same people that he saved. <coughs> Joshua and Caleb were the ones to go... 40 years, they perished. 40 years, 3 million people perished. And those who were born to them, who believed, like Joshua and Caleb, were the ones 
were led into the promised land. So what he's saying here is even those that he saved, even those that he led out of, out of captivity, who grumbled and complained, he cast judgments on them. So this is the first thing that we see what he's talking about and he's comparing it to these people who are, who are speaking false, falsehoods and, and, and false doctrine. And he's saying, just like these people's judgments was pronounced long time ago, these people's judgments is also pronounced. So um, we, we then go on to see the second, uh, um, the, just the, the a second component of this is that uh, you see in verse 6, he talks about angels, and I'm hoping that uh, our pastor will cover this when he goes into Genesis, but he talks about the angels who did not hold their, their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, and he's kept them in eternal change under, under gloomy darkness until the great judgment day. He's talking about the judgments of angels for sexual immorality. Then he goes on to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah who were judged for the same thing. We know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, every man, every young person, they surrounded the house of Lot and they wanted to know the angels carnally. He wants to have sexual relations with an, uh, angels and there was judgment passed on them. Yeah. Now he's talking about sexual immorality. Now I want us to just look at something. You, it's often said that sin is sin. Yeah. It's all sin. No sin is different than the other. But Scripture disagrees with that. And I'll, I'll justify and, and, and qualify that statement. Firstly, we find in hell that certain parts of, the, of hell are reserved for certain people. Even in here, these people are reserved for, for, for eternal darkness. You find certain sins have, have different weightings. Some are abominable. Some are unforgivable. You find different levels of sins. That's why it's different because it's more egregious for some sins. What the Bible is saying here, what Jude is saying here, is that if you understand from the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, it says he's weighing up sins, right? You picture this. So he's saying all of these other sins, lasciviousness, hatred, uh, slander, blah, 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 he names, you know, he, he, he's grouping all of these sins. And he says all of these other sins, so 99% of these sins are done outside of the body. And then he says, but sexual immorality. So you have the weight of 99% of sin on one side and then sexual immorality on one side, balancing. That shows you the weight of sexual immorality. So young people, married people, everybody in this room, we need to understand the weight of sexual immorality. Pornography, wandering eyes, whatever it may be, sexual immorality, sexual immorality. Solomon says, can a man take, take a hot coal onto his lap and not be burnt? Yeah. That is the power of sexual immorality. He says all of these things are done outside of the body. But sexual immorality is done inside. Shall a man join Christ with a harlot? Can you join Jesus with the prostitutes? Because this is what we're doing in essence. It, as you have read, that the two shall become one flesh. This is spiritual truth. So this is what he's saying. He's saying that sexual immorality, because what these people were teaching, what was the actual sin of these people? He was teaching, they were teaching that you can live your sexual best life. You can be liberal and God's grace will cover you. Don't worry about a thing because God will forgive you. It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. What's the saying? Or oh, better to ask. Yeah, uh, but you, you, you guys get the metaphor. You can rather go in sin and then ask for forgiveness later. This is what they were teaching. And this is what he's saying. Like these sexual sexually immoral examples in the Old Testament, God will judge them specifically. Uh, says that they're reserved. Their judgment is reserved for eternal darkness. People think that hell is just the lake of fire. There's levels, there's weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, another three. You find eternal darkness where you can't even see in front of your hand. There's specific judgment that is reserved for false teachers. 
and we need to be on the lookout. And what he's doing is cautioning us against false teachers. He's cautioning us to be wary. Now I myself, this strikes so close to home because those who've heard my testimony, I was part of a movement that was just not of God, but sounded good, smelled good, looked good, quoting every scripture in the Bible, sounding like the gospel. But when you're coming to the one crux, that 1% of poison, 1% straight rat poison, go and look up the ingredients, rat poison is 99% good stuff, potatoes, tomatoes, all of these different things, and 1% straight and that 1% will kill you dead. And that is what he's teaching against. The falseness, the falseness, the falseness, the lies that these people teach. It sounds alluring, it sounds sweet, it's like honey on the tongue, but will lead you to destruction. Uh, just running through these commentaries very quickly. Um, the, cite, the third citation, he says, uh, Woe to them that walk in the way of Cain. Um, they abandon themselves for the sake of, of Cain to Balaam. Balaam's error and perished in Korah. Now go and read the Old Testament, you'll see who uh, Balaam was. You'll see who Korah was. You'll see what their, what their sins were. But what is the way of Cain? What is he talking about here? The way of Cain, what is Cain? Cain was too proud to offer atonement for his sins. He offered vegetables rather than blood sacrifice. Now we need to understand, in the timeline, if you go and look at the timeline from Adam to Abraham, Abraham didn't love, live that long far from, from, from Adam. You go and look, he lived 979 years, and then Methuselah lived 900 and so much, so much. And then if you go and look at the timeline and just draw a picture of where they lived, this oral history would have passed down that God accepts blood sacrifices, that without the, the, remission, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. This was passed down, they knew this. Cain knew that blood sacrifice was, was atonement for sin, but he was too proud for that. He prepared his own way of sacrifice. Uh, he presents a bloodless offering. He hates obedience of the faith as he, sm as he smote uh, his brother Abel. And we need to understand that he was self-righteous. And self-righteousness is uh, just a few steps away from hatred. And hatred just a few steps away from murder because we know that Christ compares hatred to murder. If you hate your brother in your heart, you've murdered him. Now we need to understand that self-righteousness is a short distance to hatred and to murder. So we need to understand that's what he's talking about in terms of the way of Cain. These people are like that. They're proud and self and boastful and disobedient and they hate the way of faith. So we need to understand that uh, the way of, uh, of, of Balaam, um, Satan said, inasmuch as I cannot destroy these people, talking about Israel, neither by the sword nor slander, I will do this. I will send in their midst wolves in sheep's clothing. I will inspire various heretics carried away by their own lusts who shall in the midst of the church promulgate lies and prophecies and things in the name of the Lord. This is what Satan's plan was in Balaam. He says, I can't destroy these people. Balaam came back and said, hey, I can't curse what God has blessed. It's not working. Yeah. And he says, okay, what you can do is cast a stumbling block in front of them. Yeah. Lies. And let them worship false idols. And this is exactly the same strategy. Satan doesn't employ anything new. It might be dressed up as something different. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, pride of life. It's the same old trick. We fall for the same things over and over. And this is what he sends still. Lies and falsehoods. Twisting just enough of the truth. Just enough of the truth. What he done to Jesus in the wilderness? Wasn't falling for it. So he says, but Jesus, it's written that you shall cast yourself and he shall, cast, he shall charge his angels. Taking parts of the gospel and then just twisting it enough that it becomes lies. This is the thing of Satan. Falsehood. And that falsehood makes the whole thing poisoned. So he goes on, and uh, the, if you go and read it, you'll just see all of these different uh, commentaries and, and different citations. And, um, but 
you know, let us not, let us rather lose everything than lose Christ. In, in, that, that, is, that is the message of this. Now, when we're looking at the references of Jude, this is something that will stand out for you. He makes these five citations, right? So if you go and read the book of Jude, you go and see those. But not all of them are from the Old Testament, right? Balaam, Korah, all of those guys, Cain. But there's some that aren't in there. And you'll see references to Michael. Um, so he says when Michael came and contested for the body of, of Moses, he didn't um, uh, give a, a riling accusation against Satan, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Yeah. You don't find that in the Bible. Yeah. You don't find that. He says, uh, uh, as Enoch, seventh from Adam, because he also had to distinguish, you know, because uh, Cain's son's name was, uh, was Enoch. So he's like, that Enoch, you know, it's like Enoch Smith uh, from, from extension two. That's the kind of, <laughs> you have to, because there's no surnames, right? So, yeah. Yeah. so it's like Enoch, the seventh from Adam prophesied that the Lord is coming with myriads of his angels and other other, uh, things, uh, thousands upon thousands, just uh, innumerable angels coming to judge those who uh, were godless in their ungodliness, done ungodly things. Again, so much repetition. The ungodly people who've done ungodly things in an ungodly way will be unjudged for their ungodliness. And he's, he's quoting something, but I can't find that scripture anywhere else. And you ask yourself, where is he quoting from? There's quite a few, I think about four or five different citations from non or extra biblical uh, sources. And we need to understand where, why is the book of Enoch not in the Bible? And this is something that troubled me for a long time. Why don't we have the book of Enoch? And you go and read the Old Testament and you'll talk about the book of Jasher and you'll see the book of Barnabas and you'll see all of these different books. But God, why didn't you put these if this guy's quoting something? Why don't we have the full context of this? And this is a question that troubled me, but in short, the answer is that um, if, if you know Roman Catholicism, go look at the Catholic Bible, you will see extra biblical books in there called canon. Uh, not, not canon, called apocryphas. Now the apocryphas are all of these book of Barnabas, book of Maccabees, all of these different Bible, uh, books that were written. You also get pseudodegraphia, which is also extra biblical writings. But most of these apocryphas were written in the intertestament period. Uh, period. Now, Intertestamental period was between the book of Malachi and the book of, of Matthew. Now, if you know your Bible timeline, you will see that between the book of Malachi and the, between the book of, of, of Matthew, which is the way the New Testament meets, the Old Testament, there was 400 years which God did not speak to a single person. He didn't speak, he didn't prophesy, no prophets arose until you get, until you get John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament uh, prophet in the New Testament. In that period, you had the rise of the, the Pharisees, you had the rise of the scribes, you had all of this tradition that was added, so a lot of things were added in there. And this is where a lot of these, the book of Judas, you find a bunch of, of letters and books and extra biblical gospels that were written. And a lot of these books were written in this period. And the book of Enoch was one of those. Now, these books would have been known to the, to the apostles, to the disciples, so you find them citing certain, certain traditions or certain books. But in essence, what is happening here is that you can find truth in something which doesn't mean, mean it's inspired. And this is what Jude is doing here. And I'll show you in scripture what, what, how I got to this conclusion. Um, you can also find in, in the Old Testament, the Bible says that Solomon wrote 5,000 hymns and psalms and songs. But you don't find many of them in the psalms. He wrote five, he wrote more than David. And the Bible is very fine that he wrote more, he outdone his father in all aspects. But you don't find them there because of inspiration. Now, if you look at Acts 17, and I'll read this very quickly for you. Acts 17, 26 says this. Paul is, is, is speaking to this church. And he says, 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the earth and face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Who's Paul quoting here? Find that scripture somewhere. We don't find it. Paul is quoting two Greek pagan writers in the Bible as scripture. We find uh, one of the Greek writers, Epimenides and Eratus, he's quoting two poets from Greek tradition and he's saying that even your own poets have spoken truth about God. Jude is doing the same thing. He's referencing extra-biblical um, sources and saying it's truth which is making a part of scripture does not mean that the whole is, is inspired so this is why we don't have the book of, 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 of Enoch it's not talking actually Enoch didn't write it Enoch walked with God back in the day and he was not but this was written in a different period thousands and thousands of years after but there is some truth in it but it is not inspired um, so there's truth in the writings it is not part of canon and basically how we got our Bible is that when John the Revelator wrote the book of Revelation and he said this is it, finish and cloud, this is the end of the book and the council a couple of hundred years got together and they validated and verified truth. You find Peter calling uh, Paul's writing scripture, you find Paul calling the Old Testament writes, this was known to the church and you had the council of uh, Jamnia in 434 AD and they got together and they validated which books are scripture. So. We got our Bible, and I wish I could have expounded on that more, but in, in essence, this is why we don't find the book of, of, of Enoch in, in Scripture. And uh, so, in essence, then we find many other tribes. You find judgments to Israel, the, the judgments of the angels, and the judgments of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and we then look at the purpose of this epistle. He's identifying false teachers. So how do we identify false teachers in this day and age? Just like he identified these false teachers, now he addresses some specific sins, right? So what do these people do? So you find Paul addressing some issues. You find Peter addressing some issues. The other apostle addressing specifically what these people done. But Jude addresses two falsehoods. And how do we address this? So firstly, it, it begins with the charge that they change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Um, licentiousness, as my, my wife was, was questioning me last night, it's, it's, it's immorality. And uh, so funny, she asked me, what's licentiousness? And then I use another big word to explain that word. And she's like, you're not helping me, Brian. <laughs> so I'm going to explain it. So in essence, they change in the grace of God for a license to be immoral. So, what is the grace of God? It's God's unmerited, unwarranted favor on our lives. No matter what you do, no matter how far you go, God can cover a multitude of sin. This is the grace of our God. The Bible says that God is rich in mercy, full of grace. What he says is that you deserve to die, you deserve to be punished, but my grace is sufficient for you, that I'll cover everything. But this is what these people are doing. They were saying, Carry on with what you're doing. Live in the things that you're doing. Carry on skinnering. Carry on sleeping around. Carry on with your sin. It's okay. Because God will forgive you. Doesn't he, doesn't he say that, that his grace is sufficient for you? New mercies each morning. Ah, so you, you, you must wash clean the next day. Don't worry. 
this is the type of, of things that they were teaching. So he gave them the charge that they changed the grace of God for license for immorality. So such behavior is one thing, but it is the false teacher's rationale for, for that provokes Jude's response. They took advantage of God's grace and liberal unmerited grace and favor and exploited it, exploited the theological concept of grace um, to give them free limits. So this is called libertinism and antinomianism. So some, some isms for you. And I'll explain, I'll explain those isms. So those isms are in the second in essence, is that they deny Christ. This is the other charge that, that Jude gives. He says they deny Christ. Um, and uh, so the Bible says there is salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given amongst men that we should be saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father unless they come through me. We need to understand that this is what they were saying. They were undermining the deity of God. And if you want to see what is being attacked these days, it is the deity of God. The book of Genesis and the book of Revelation are the most attacked books that you will find because it has got creation and you'll find creationism being attacked. You'll find because it has Satan's judgments and Satan's origins. And we will find that the books that pertain to Christ's deity and the theology around who Christ is, this is the isms that are the most prevalent today, and this is something that will be attacked. You find in Islam even that they'll find, oh, we believe in the same God, but it is a different Jesus, not the one who died for you on the sin, on the cross, who came back, who imputed his righteousness unto you, who justified you, who sanctified you, and will glorify you. This is not the Jesus that is preached in either. Mormonism believes that Jesus and Satan are brothers. This is, this is the, the other religions and these are the same things that are creeping in and these people come in and Bible says that they crept in back door skeleton says they crept in and they're eating love feasts with you the visitors as Jude says same people who are at your, at your feasts who are the ones preaching falsehoods to you so these are the two sins changing Christ for for liber liberty to do whatever you want and denying Christ now what we must understand today is we find this but you know you won't hear antinomianism and libertism preach from the pulpits when I was younger, and I heard that scripture in Timothy where it says that in the latter days you will hear doctrines of demons. And I pictured this devil with this fork and, and uh, standing here and preaching to the people. I'm like, how do they allow this? Most like, uh, how is this happening? You know, like I didn't understand what the prophecy meant. But then when I saw when John spoke and he says that we need to test the spirits, the Holy Spirit speaks through us. The devil, likewise, evil spirits speak through man. But the Satan is so slick with it that he says that he appears as an angel of light. Satan does not come with horns and a fork directly to you and says, doctrine of demon, believe these things. He will come with truth and he will come disguised as an angel of light. And this is what the doctrines of demons are, is that you will have truth, but with a little twist, a little twist. You will have just enough truth, but enough lies just to make the whole thing poison. And this is what they were doing. And this is what we see today. You will find these seeker-friendly pastors and preachers coming to the pulpits and preaching all of the nice messages about how God can change you. TED Talks from the pulpits. God can bless you. God can increase. He can change. He can. You have these, these uh, motivational speakings. And when you're looking for the gospel, when we, when, when we understand that Christ is the center of this book, you'll find him in Genesis to Revelation in every book, even in the obscure books, you'll find Christ as the center of all. 
All things were made for him. All things were made through him. All things were made by him. Christ is all. He's a be all and end all. He introduces himself in the middle of the Bible. He's in the beginning. He's in the end. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the author and finish of our faith. Christ is all. And I dare you to go and listen to one of these, these preachers. And you make up for yourself. Let God guide you under the spirits of truth, which is the word of God. And go and see if the gospel is being preached. Because you'll find all of the motivation in the world. You can be all you can be. You can be great. You can be amazing. This is your time to shine. This is your seed, your miracle, your harvest. This is your thing now. Today is... Go and find the gospel in it. Because it's not what they say, but it's what they don't say. I heard a preacher saying that. As Pastor Clinton was praying, he says that, I believe that 99% of people are good. And the, but the Bible says that there's none who are righteous, none who do good. No, not one. And I'm like, but Pastor, but... Can't he, like, are you reading the same <laughs> book? You know, it, but this is the lies because these, 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 it says that they will heap for themselves up teachers, having itching ears, preaching nice things. We're we attracting big crowds, but preach a message that is talking about self-denial and persecution and suffering and, and, and denying yourself and hatred of sin. I dare you to go speak up against something that is prevalent today and uh, LGBT or... Oh, go and preach up against something and, and see how you are cancelled tomorrow. But because we want to hear about grace and love and mercy and only that, let us preach the full counsel of gospel. So, this is what they were guilty of. And it's not what they say, it's what they don't say. They deny Christ. They deny Christ in what they don't say because you're not preaching the full gospel. Christ preached more about hell than he did about anything else. More about any, anyone else. But we don't hear it from the pulpit because... ah. Uh, Carlton Pearson, you all know him, and I'm, uh, he, he spoke a heretical gospel where he says that I don't believe that a loving God can, can condemn people to hell forever, for eternity. But you don't understand that God is eternal and his, and his punishments are eternal and sin is so egregious that we deserve punishments and by you not choosing his salvation, you are choosing hell. Yeah. Carlton Pearson says, no, hell doesn't exist. I can't believe that, there's some, that a loving God will be so unloving to send someone. This is what, why we need to be aware so Jude then makes this, this content, uh, he makes this, this, this appeal to, to us and he says, Beloved, although I was eagerly writing to you to talk about your common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Amen. Contend for the faith. So the cure of false teaching is being firmly grounded in the truth of the gospel, knowing the true gospel inside and out is the, is the only crucial way of being able to identify departures from the gospel and remain true in Jesus. Therefore, those who claim to be his people must resist those who deny his authority, either directly through their teaching or indirectly through the indulgence of sinful behavior. What I'm saying here is that if we are to not be led astray, we need to know our Bible people. So now, I know Bevan said it jokingly last week, go and memorize and read the Bible, but how many of us have read and taking up the challenge to actually challenge is this guy speaking truth? Is he lying from the pulpit? Am I a false teacher? How do you know? Because I can quote, I'll outquote you in scripture. You won't be able to contend with me, but you should be able to come and say, hey, that thing that you said, maybe it's not, it's not biblical, it's not doctrinal. This is the, char the charge that, that Jude is saying. It says, know your Bible. 
Not just know your scripture and be able to quote end to end, but know the content, know your theology, know what the Bible is saying, know what grace is and how do we not offend grace and how far can we go and you know, what is repentance and what is imputation, what are these things? I'm not just saying big words, but these are things that are in the Bible. How do you contend for the faith? How do you go into a fight and not be prepared? If I were to go take on Floyd Mayweather, that guy will, will beat me up and maybe give me a bit of training. I can, I can land a punch or two. You need to be able to contend for the faith. You need to be able to be well trained. You need to, your, your sword needs to be sharpened is what I'm saying. You cannot defend or contend for the faith unless you don't know what's in the Bible. Go and read and study to show yourself approved. doesn't matter what age you are. You can quote the scripture. You can throw a punch. Defend because we all are partakers in this common faith. And if you can't defend, I remember the once uh, Bevan and I were at a pray and somebody made a joke, this guy, and he says, you know, hey, if, if, God, uh, if God is telling us to be married, how come he's not married? And yeah, laughter, laughter, but I've seen the, the indignation and the, the fire rising in Bevan's eyes, but it's like he's coming back for a bride, you know, I could see the, the preacher man in him, he's coming for a bride unspotted, you can't tell, <laughs> he never engaged in it, but I'm saying that's a type of indignation because we need to have that, that, that fire for God, that zeal for God, that even if somebody is misquoting or joking about something, we should be able to contend with him and say, brother, you're wrong, yeah. you're wrong, he's coming back for his bride, he is married, he's engaged. So, what I want us just to look at very quickly, and I'm going to, to, to bring this to a speedboat close, is that we have what we call the fundamentals. So, in order to know what we believe in, you need to know sort of the body of, of work that, that describes what we believe. Because you could be an agnostic, you could be a Mormon, you could be a Seventh-day Adventist, Jehovah's Witness. We're all reading from the similar book or the same book. We need to know what is the... the, the unrefuted, undeniable basis, foundational truth that we are standing for. We need to know what are the main things here. Because we can disagree on a lot of things. We can disagree on, on tithing, we can disagree on um, you know, a bunch of different doctrines that might be obscure or might be secondary, but what are the foundational beliefs of what we believe? We can't, we can't disagree on Christ's death, burial and resurrection. Yeah. Non-negotiable. Yeah non-negotiable because that defines if Christ didn't if Christ didn't rise Paul says then our whole gospel our whole belief should be thrown away yeah. so there's certain things that can't be disagreed on and certain things we can we can debate and let it let it slide so what I like to call the Avengers of, 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 of preachers um, th there was a council that got together about a hundred years ago and these men were R.A. Tori, you might know them. Um, this was D.L. Moody's personal assistant. He is also the founder of a Bible, uh, uh, Bible Institute in L.A., in Los Angeles. B.B. Uh, Warfield, uh, he went to the West, uh, Westminster Cemetery. One of the greatest advocates of inspiration. Uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle, I'd like to quote him, love his writings. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, a master of uh, expositional preaching. Um, you know, he's sort of the, the, the grandfather or the father of expositional preaching. He wouldn't preach a message until he read a passage 40 times. This is the type of man he was. Uh, C.I. Schofield, you'll know him from the Schofield Study Bible, for those of you who collect Bibles. Uh, James M. Gray, uh, he came from the Moody uh, Bible Institutes. A.T. Pearson, uh, also a very good, avid uh, devotional writer, and so on. These men from different disciplines all got together and said, listen, what are the seven things that we can distill down to say these are the foundational truths that us as Christians, because at the time, you must understand the Catholic Church was running rife to say that um, the Pope intercedes and you know, all of these different things and 
they were like, but the Bible doesn't speak of these things. Why are we doing certain things traditionally that don't add up? So they were fighting and contending with the Catholic Church at this time, and they're saying, listen, they distill true beliefs that distinguish true believers from false believers. They wrote multiple volumes. Uh, it was a guide to false teaching, the seven essentials or doctrines or pillars of our salvation, and it goes as follows. The first one is inspiration. First thing that we don't negotiate on. So all we know and believe about God is based on his word so that uh, so they affirm the inspiration and reliability and historicity of the Bible. Um, so they had affirmed that the Bible is inspired. Uh, my sister, they read the, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. All. All God's scripture. And good for reproach. And, you know, so this is what they've taught. Inspiration. Second is creation. And Pastor Bevan's going to cover this. That God is revealed from cover to cover in his word as the creator of the universe. Just as he described in the Bible. So... They exposed the grave errors of evolution and Darwinism because this was teachings that were just prevalent at the time. God is the creator. We did not expose, we did not come from nothing from some, something from nothing. Not from monkeys, not from all of this nonsense. But God is the creator. We create in his own image. Uh, third was doctrine. God's word teaches clear doctrines about Jesus and his, and his church. So uh, they specifically named the cults who were present in false gospels and those namely which Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, Christian Science, Spiritism and so on and likewise we have a host more today that we have to contend with other isms, feminism, all the other isms that we have today that have become other religions, BLMs and all of these different things, race relations but that's a, a thing for another day. Depravity was the fourth. God's word declares the reality of sin so they affirm that man is basically not good, but born a sinner. We are depraved from birth. I'm born in sin and shaped in iniquity. The fifth is substitution. God's word only presents um, biblical salvation as received by faith in God incarnate. God gives us his righteousness for, in exchange for our righteousness. The sixth is imputation. God's word teaches that salvation cannot be earned at any level. And it's dispensed by God and not by any church or any cleric. This is non-negotiable. God imputes his righteousness. It teaches that we cannot earn it. There's no works. You cannot pray 50 times and do 10 Hail Marys and do 15 prayers and whatever it may be to try and earn your salvation. It is given by God, unmerited, unfavored, unwarranted. It is given gracefully to us. And the last seventh is Christ, uh, Christology. Finally, the, the most fervent, they most fervently declare that all errors start in some way with an incorrect view of Christ. So we need to know who is our Christ, right? Um, so, defending the faith. The gospel is assailed and we must rise to its defense for it is, common, it is our common salvation for all those involved in it. Let our common salvation be protected by earnest zeal of the entire body of the church and also by us also. The pastors can't be defending people in your workplace, they aren't there pastors can't be defending people in the bus or wherever you are. You need in some capacity to know your Bible enough to contend and push back. Someone says that hard, argu hard arguments, softly put, are really effective weapons. Have hard arguments and put them softly. And thirdly, we need to do it with a good heart. Doesn't matter what we're arguing against. We need to do, have no railing accusation. Because uh, James says that human anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So when we're contending for the faith, always do it at the good heart. 
not be Facebook warriors where somebody says something and is like, brother, let me tell you something and the expositional, doctrinal, well, we cannot be having these arguments and I had to just mute somebody lately because every video they put up is like, oh, the Bible is lies and, and I'm like, hey, buddy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch you. Like, we're going <laughs> to meet up and I'm going to have to have a few words with you. But also in love because you're misguided and you don't have the truth in you and you're blinded and you just, you, you're not understanding the richness of the Word of God, how the Bible is. The Bible is the most ref, cross-referenced, hyper-linked book. It's got 65,000 cross-references. You can imagine you're doing an assignment and it's like refer to page 5, refer to page 10, refer to page 1000. That's what the Bible does 65,000 times. 65,000 times. It is amazing. But he doesn't understand that. So just looking at when we're defending the Bible, and I just want to give you some practical tips. Now, we have a problem as a church, or as, as a modern-day church, engaging in, uh, forcefully over ideology. When it's ideology that doesn't line up with the Bible, we have trouble because Satan has made it so difficult or unappealing to even defend the Bible because you are cancelled. You'll know that term being cancelled. Yeah. We are cancelled. We are... Just, uh, it makes it difficult. So we have this problem, number one, is just engaging forcefully over ideology. Take, for example, abortion. So let's say in your advocacy for the pro-life position, right? So we pro-life, we believe life begins at, at inception. There's life there, there's inherency, there's value in, uh, in, in a human being from inception. And that's your position you're arguing because that's a hot topic now. And let's say that you are maybe less than kind. You're not being very let's say not loving but less than kind in your new engagements so there are some Christians out there who are more offended by you being less than kind and killing babies in the womb and ironically they will be less than kind to you for being less than kind for speaking about the sixth commandment thou shall not kill so they're more offended by you not being nice and you not being XYZ but you forget that you are, you are defending a position of strength that the Bible says that life should, be pre, uh, life should be protected. There is value in life. Thou shall not kill. That is a silent holocaust. There were six million Jews killed in the holocaust. How, go and do research on how many babies are killed per day. It is a silent holocaust. There are multi, multi millions killed per year of unborn babies. And it goes silent because we have the right to choose. We have the right to choose autonomy of our own bodies, but then you want to go and have all of the fun in the world, and when it's inconvenient for you, you want to delete a baby. You are killing a child in the home. But in your defense of this position, we need to understand that there's something that they call the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. And this is the, this is the, the commandment, and we're forgetting all the others. We're forgetting commandment number six because you sh thou shalt be nice should trump everything else because you can't be offensive in this culture. The Bible is offensive and it doesn't need your help to make it more offensive so don't be too offensive in your defense of the gospel hard truths put softly this is what the bible is saying is that we need to defend we need to contend and at the risk of even being a little bit offensive to 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 certain situations because we're defending truth we're not defending our own own view there's some things that i wish could be different in the bible but the bible is a bible maybe the bible could have said you could have 20 wives and it's like hey maybe okay maybe not but bad example <laughs> but in the bible it's saying that we should contest the bible uses war language it uses very violent language and we need to understand that it says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood we do not wrestle you it's the close quarter combat 
you find that when you've uh, the armor of God, it, that, that, that's military regalia. You had the Roman regalia, it's, 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 it's military, modern day times, maybe the AK of truth or the, you know, you, you find that it's very militaristic in its, in its way. And Bevan likes to say that, um, you know, there's no demilitarized zone in the kingdom. You either on one side or you're on the other side. There's no middle ground where you can say you're taking a break here. This is a contest and an con and, and a ongoing contest and it's going to be difficult. It's not an easy thing, but this is a privilege for us to defend God's truth. Yeah. It is a privilege for us to defend His truth. So this is what we need to understand in defending God's truth is that this is our common salvation. It's our common belief. Each and every one of us are part of a body, whether we like it or not. The leg can't decide it is not jogging today. The body does what the head wants, and our head is Christ. And we are charged. This is not a suggestion. Jude doesn't say, if you feel up to it, if the circumstances are right, if you had your breakfast, if you, know, if you are in a good mood, contend for the faith. It says, as an imperative, as a commandment, contend for the faith. Defend the gospel, because this is the truth unto salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the truth of God unto salvation so this book guys read this book this book of jude is so rich and uh, pastor clinton is going to take us through a second part next week and my gosh we could preach this for for months but um i do want you to be released and go have your your lunch so in closing jude is addressing the church like i'm addressing you today and he says Beware of false teachers and apostates. Apostates are somebody who turns away. And if you read in Matthew 24, when they were saying, Master, Master, what will be the sign of your time? You know the Jews like signs. What, will be the, what do we look out for when you're coming? And before he gave them a list of things, earthquakes and wars and all of these things, he said, careful lest you be deceived. So he says, deception will be the precursor to the end times. Many will go out. Satan is deployed legions and legions of false teachers you don't even need to look far you can name so many of them legions and legions of false teachers some who look like angels of light this is the sign that of the time we're living in now the market is flooded the market is flooded how are you going to make sure that you are able to stand as he says keep yourself in the love of god is by knowing this book people read this book study this book meditate on it day and night we need to write scriptures i write scriptures on my board I memorize them, um, I think about them, I contend, I, I think, why did he say it like that? Why, is it said, why isn't it said differently, etc.? We need to understand that this book is all. So, let us contend for the faith. Let us stand strong. And remember, you are kept for Jesus. Keep yourself in the love of God. And he himself will keep you from stumbling. That's why we know we will not be, because we are a church of Bereans. We study the Bible. I know you're going to go home and and go check everything that I've said. So without further ado, I'm going to end and I'm going to ask just Pastor Bevan to just um, pray for us, read us the benediction uh, at uh, verse 23 and 24, Bev. <laughs>